I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 129. And in this episode, I'll go through some common questions I've received in the past few months. I speak to many people on a weekly basis and get tens of questions per week, mainly through Facebook and Twitter. I try and answer them to the best of my ability, and I think the answers to some of the questions will be very beneficial to a wider audience. So I've picked up some of the questions for me to discuss in this episode. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via my Facebook page. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. I call them the three E's. The first E is to be educated about personal finances. And to be educated means it'll improve your financial literacy. And that leads to the second E, which is to be empowered. With financial literacy and education, you can use that knowledge and be empowered. So when you go and take it to your credentialed accountant or financial advisor or planner, you can talk at a level that both of you can understand. And the third E is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed advisor. In other words, don't listen to some random bloke ranting on the internet about money. But if you're looking for some broad principles in terms of getting them in the right track when it comes to saving or investing and personal finance in general... In my humble view, I think there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first. Why? Because you're the most important person in your life. Take a set amount of after-tax money, I recommend 20%, and put it aside. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market, so I put my money into the stock market in the form of index funds. Step three is reinvest dividends. The power of compounding by reinvesting dividends over the long term is phenomenal. Step four is that long term. Now, in my humble opinion, long term is not five, 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking at about 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five is, wherever possible, automate these steps. With automation, it means there's less chances you'll forget or make mistakes and more chances that you'll actually follow the plan. Now, if you do these five simple steps over the long term, you'll have more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. And now is probably more important than ever to use your money to make lives of other people better. So I've got some questions lined up. So let's go through one by one. The first question is, 
how much should brokerage cost be? It's a very common question that I get. And I think generally speaking, I use the 1% rule. So if you can keep your brokerage costs less than 1% of your parcel of money that you invest each time, then I think that's a pretty good figure. So for example, if you're investing $1,000 into an ETF or buying a specific share, then I think your brokerage costs should be maximum $10 um, because otherwise too much of your money um, I think is wasted on brokerage. So if you find that your brokerage is you know, a little bit high, then you may want to pay yourself money you know, into a separate account. And once that it reaches a specific amount of money, which sort of fits the 1% rule, then you can take that money and invest it into the stock market or ETF or individual shares or whatever you do. So yeah, so keep it simple. I just say 1% of your money should be the maximum you spend on brokerage. There are a lot of brokers out there that are relatively cheap. Um, you know, five to 10 bucks is roughly what the cost is to get into the stock market in terms of actually buying something. So um, yeah, so 1%, keep it simple. Um, let's move on. The second question is, is there a one size fits all when it comes to investments? For example, can I just buy an ETF, which is well diversified across the entire globe and be done with it? And the answer is, yeah, you can if you want to. Um, there are ETFs out there which cover the entire global equity markets. So if you just put $10,000 into that particular ETF, it gets exposure across the entire global equity markets. Um, so the way I'd explain that strategy is basically, imagine going to Coles and that Coles can be representative of the Australian market or the entire global market. And the veggie section, you know, might be uh, the Australian market. Um, the deli section might be uh, the Indian market. Um, and your chips and your, you know, fruit juice section might be the Southeast Asian markets. And your you know, frozen section might be the American market, etc. Now, of course, the American market represents the majority of the global market, you know, I think about 40% of the entire global economy is a US market. So if you just use that analogy as every time you go to Coles and when we go shopping, we don't just buy chocolate. We don't just buy fruits. We don't just buy bread. We buy a bit of everything. Um, so, uh, so there are ETFs out there that enable you to do that. Now, as for myself... I just imagine Coles to be the entire Australian market and each of those aisles represent particular sectors within the Australian market. So, you know, the bread aisle might be the mining sector, the um, fruit juice aisle might be the banking sector, the fruit and veg aisle might be the retail sector, etc. Um, so, you know, if, if you just think about the stock market, you know, being exactly the same as going to Coles or Woolies, where each of those brands or products that you buy are representative of companies that make those products. So it's kind of like going to the stock market and buying a bit of 
West Farmers or Woolies or Commonwealth Bank shares, etc. You're sort of buying companies. That's what you're doing. But to answer this question, yes, there is. There is a one-size-fits-all ETF. And of course, you've got to look at your risk profile. You've got to look at your personal strategy. You need to look at how much money you have, what the cost of it is, the management fees, and whether that would still be suitable for you in the next 20 years' time. Question three. Um, Dev, would you count 10% compulsory super guarantee, which my employer gives me as part of the 20% of pay yourself money? Now, the short answer to that is no. I don't think compulsory super guarantee um, should be part of your 20% of after-tax pay-yourself money. Generally speaking, I try and recommend people to save at least 20% of their after-tax money in addition to whatever employer contributes into their super. Because essentially, the employer contributions is free money. It's your money, but it's free money. Um, and employee contributions are not your savings. It's not something that you can access straight away. Um, It's free money, which you're entitled to. Uh, And P.S., make sure you check your super. As of 1st of July 2021, your employer should be paying you 10% on your gross wage. Now, if you can't do both, then at least maximise your super with your concessional contributions, knowing very well your contributions are locked away until preservation age, which is the age in which you can access your super. And that's one of the bad things about super is that you can't just access your money when you need it. So the short answer to that question is no. Compulsory 10% super guarantee contributions should not be part of your 20% of after-tax income. Try and save 20% on top of whatever your employer pays you in terms of your super contributions. Question four, is it okay to save up for an emergency fund at the same time as starting to invest? Now, I used to be really rigid about this, um, but I think I've softened up a little bit over the years. The answer for me is yes, you can save up for an emergency fund at the same time as starting to invest. Now, I used to say, you know, you should always build up your emergency funds first then start investing. Um, But depending on your income, you know, your build-up of emergency funds of three to six months or 12 months of income or expenses might take, you know, two or three years. And as a result of that, you may miss out on compound growth. So imagine if you hadn't invested in 2020 when the COVID market crashed, you would have missed out on that market. So I've sort of changed my tune on this. Um, so, you know, using the 30-30-20-20 rule in terms of budgeting, your last 20% after-tax income, uh, if you haven't got an emergency fund, should be for emergency funds, um, you know, if it's not fully topped up. Because the last 20% is generally reserved for miscellaneous expenses or luxury expenses, uh, but you really shouldn't be, you know, spending money on luxury items if you don't have an emergency fund. Now, of course, if you have consumer debt, please pay that off before you have your three to 12 months of emergency funds. So just to clarify, if you've got consumer debt, you've got to save up that $1,000 emergency fund and pay off that consumer debt before you save up any more emergency funds and before you even start investing. That's very, very clear because your consumer debt is literally stealing money from you. If you've got a credit card debt or personal loan debt, you need to get rid of it. 
Now, if you don't have any consumer debt, the question then becomes, after you've saved the $1,000 emergency fund, should you save the three to six months or 12 months emergency fund first and then invest? Or should you save that three to six months or 12 months emergency fund and concurrently start investing? I used to say do the former, but now I'm saying, you know, I think you should start investing as soon as possible. So if you've got spare cash after you've put aside your 20% after tax, pay yourself money uh, and you've just, you know, slowly funding up your emergency fund, put the money into an investment because the power of compounding over the long term is phenomenal. Question five, uh, with house prices so high, is it ever possible to buy a home with mortgages being only 30% of after-tax income? So one of the rules that I have, which is, you know, you can sort of use my rules as, you know, hard and fast rules or generic rules or guidelines, but I think they kind of work well to give you some sort of structure. What I say is in your monthly budget, 30% of after-tax income is probably the most that you should spend on housing expenses, and that includes mortgage. So this question is, well, if house prices are so high, then your mortgages are going to be high. Is it practical? Uh, Look, I have to acknowledge that things are really, really crazy in Melbourne and Sydney right now, Uh, even during COVID. You know, um, I just spoke to a real estate agent just last week where six properties um, close to where I live sold uh, sight unseen. So people are buying properties without seeing the actual property. People are buying property after seeing them virtually online or using Google Maps or 3D Maps or whatever it is. So it is a bit insane at the moment. Um, Having said that, uh, I think Melbourne auctions were only 35% capacity last weekend um, as opposed to, you know, some of the open markets in Adelaide or Tasmania, et cetera, which a lot more high clearance rates. So, you know, you have to really think about how much you're willing to commit for a home. And I think if you're committing more than 30% of after-tax income to your mortgage, I think that's a bit risky. I think that's, uh, you know, potentially heading into financial stress if the, you know, interest rates fluctuate and go up, then it just puts you under mortgage stress very quickly. And you also have to think about, do you really need to live in the city suburbs? Um, you know, think about regional or out, out, of, out of cities um, because they're much less expensive with significant growth potential. Um, you know, COVID has really shown that it's possible to work for many of our professions um, from your home. And, you know, some of my friends who are in the non-medical industry have not returned to their offices since March 2020. And some of them haven't really regretted it. Um, there's great savings for them in terms of transportation costs, etc., and all the deductions that they can do with home offices. And that's sort of a separate topic altogether. And I have done a series on tax deductions as well. I think it's episode 90s. If you go back, I did about five or six episodes on what you can and cannot claim uh, in your tax deductions, particularly in relation to COVID. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, I, I think the 30% after-tax rule is a pretty sensible rule. Um, so I, I generally routinely don't recommend breaching that. Question six, 
I'm in my 30s. Is it important that I maximize $110,000 per year in non-concessional contributions? Now, maximizing your non-concessional contributions is important if your super is unlikely to reach the transfer balance cap of $1.7 million in today's dollars. If you think you'll reach that amount anyway, then it's just as easy to invest outside of super. The good thing about super is $1.7 million or up to um, that you build up in your super is tax-free earnings. And after that, earnings are only taxed at 15%. So if you invest outside of super, um, the issue is you need to you know, pay potentially marginal tax rates. Of course, you've got franking dividends and franking credits and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, if you think you're going to reach the transfer balance cap of $1.7 million in today's dollars, then you don't really need to contribute uh, your non-concessional caps. That's more designed for people that can't get to that $1.7 million. Question seven. Help, I got a notification about my income being PSI. What do I do? Now, I've done a PSI episode. Um, just the best way to search for my episodes is, you know, go to any podcasting app and just type in PSI and you'll get the PSI episode. Have a listen to it. But it's not an uncommon scenario. Like I've had messages from doctors, messages from tradespeople who've been um, pinged for their PSI income. And PSI just means personal services income. Now, a simple rule of thumb is if 50% or more of your work comes from your skills or labor, then you're likely going to be affected by PSI. So I'd be contacting your accountant for advice if you've been contacted by the ATO about please explain and seek independent legal advice. You need to get this advice early before you liaise with the ATO. At the end of the day, you don't want to muck around with the ATO or SRO services because they have more powers than you, full stop. So you don't want the tax department or the state revenue office on your back about unpaid taxes because the way that you've structured your finances is actually PSI, but you haven't done it that way. So get accounting advice and get independent legal advice early. And if you've made a mistake, I think it's reasonable to think about accepting it, uh, provided, you know, that you get the appropriate advice about it. Question eight, is audit protection insurance worth it? My accountant has offered this to me. Uh, Look, I have audit protection insurance. My accountant uh, offers to me every year. Uh, I think it is worth it, although I haven't been formally audited yet. And um, remember, it doesn't protect me for the losses incurred if an audit finds me in breach of tax liabilities. But it does protect me against the cost of an audit. It pays for my accountant's bills if the audit occurs. So that's the key difference you need to understand, okay? So the audit protection insurance doesn't pay for your tax breaches. It just pays the fees for your accountant in order for them to do all the paperwork. So just remember that that is a very important difference.
Question nine. Hi, Dev. I'm a med student and have about $20,000 in savings. Is it enough to start investing? Absolutely. Um, well done on such a great savings. Um, as a med student, I mean, what sort of work do you do, especially during COVID? I mean, it's incredible. Um, so 20000 is amazing. It's plenty. Um, and if you have a look at the latest Vanguard 2021 chart, it clearly explains how $10,000 would have grown to $200,000 if people just reinvested dividends and let it be in some asset classes, particularly the stock market. So the answer is yes, yes, yes. 20000 is plenty to start with. Um, knowing that you'll pay yourself first 20% after-tax income moving forward. So you're going to be adding to that $20,000 as you move into your medical career. So congratulations and well done. Um, and yeah, you need to start inspiring your fellow medical students and all students listen to this podcast, you know, start investing early. Question 10, um, do I need an ABN to start investing? And the answer is no. Uh, if you're investing under your own name, you don't need an ABN. Um, you know, you might want to speak to your accountant if it makes it more tax effective. I don't really think so. Uh, particularly if you're a sole trader, um, I don't think it makes much of a difference to be honest. To start investing, what you need is money. You need a clear savings habit, and you need a long-term strategy. That's it. Finance is mostly behavioural. So the answer to that is no, you don't need an ABA to start investing. Question 11, um, I attended one of your webinars for junior doctors. I learned more from your one webinar than what my financial advisor has told me in a few years. Thank you very much. Now, that's an interesting one. Uh, first of all, thanks for the feedback, and that's fantastic that you're learning. Uh, yes, I do do webinars for organizations, if anyone is interested in learning the basics, it's nothing spectacular, but I put, put things in perspective. It's very simple. Um, and then people just do their own due diligence, of course, about specific investments. But it's about financial principles and concepts. If you're an organization which wants me to run one, feel free to reach out to me. It's free. It's fun. It takes about an hour and a half of my time and your time, and which hopefully translates into potentially several million dollars in investments in your life. So you know, I talk about financial concepts. I don't talk about specific investment ideas. And I think for this person, when you choose your financial advisor, you need to make sure they're teachers as well, uh, as well as managing your money. It's really important. I would not give them access to all of my money and say, thanks, can you manage it for me without much oversight or much interest from you? That's how people can get really screwed in the long term. So I'm disappointed that your financial advisor hasn't taught you much uh, at the same time, I'm very grateful that you've learned a lot from our webinar. But for those people that are choosing financial advisors or have financial advice, you need to ask yourself, are they teaching you? You know, are they supporting you through this? Or are they just basically letting things be and waiting for you to ask them questions? Because if that's the case, then what's the point of having a financial advisor? Um, so yeah, just make sure you allow your financial advisor to become your teacher and mentor about money. Question 12, how are you paid doing the podcast? I get asked this a lot and the answer is I don't get paid a cent. 
It's free. I do it for free. I kept it for free. Uh, look, if advertisers want to sponsor episodes, I'm open to it. I'm not a great fan of affiliate marketing because, you know, you know, promoting links and getting, you know, 50 free trades and all that sort of stuff. That's not really my style because I don't trade. And I think if I was, you know, dealing with companies that promote trading, then I'm not being truthful about uh, my intentions. If I don't do something, I'm not going to ask you to do it. So, uh, you know, if you're a sponsor and you're looking to sponsor one of my episodes on my podcast channel, uh, I'm happy for you to contact me, but you need to provide something tangible. Um, And, you know, it doesn't have to be money related, um, but it has to be useful for the audience. Um, So I'm, I'm a great fan of education. So if you're an education company or if you think you offer services to people that listen to this podcast, you want to teach them something, uh, I'd be very keen to hear from you because I think people need to learn about money. People need to learn about investing and financial principles and concepts, um, but not a great fan of affiliate marketing. And yes, this podcast is free and I intend to keep it free uh, for people that listen to it. I think it's important. This information is a very important for everyone to be able to access. Question 13. With Afterpay now being taken over by Square, what does it mean for shareholders? That's a very interesting question. Now, if you haven't been living under a rock, Afterpay has just been bought out by Square, which is an American giant. It's owned by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. And what does it mean for the Australian Afterpay shareholders? Well, here's my basic understanding. Now, I don't invest in individual shares, right? So, but I sort of looked it up. Basically, what will happen is the American Square company will list in the local ASX market, giving the option of the Afterpay shareholders to also be a shareholder of the locally listed Square company. And for each Afterpay share their own, they will get 0.375 Square shares, common stock, um, Class A shares. But instead of this, shareholders can also be given US listed Square shares as well. And the option is with the Australian shareholder, they can choose get onto the US listed securities or the Australian listed Square securities. Um, now, of course, there would be some tax implications of investing in the US listed securities, right? So the taxation there varies a little bit. Now, the way I see it, there are three main things which may occur. Um, now, the growth opportunity is massive. That's the first thing. Square is a massive company. It's worth about $121 billion US. Compare that to the $29 billion takeover bid for Afterpay, which is Australia's largest takeover. And, you know, the growth opportunity of incorporating Afterpay into Square is massive. Because Square is essentially a payments company, right? They're a payment platform. And the second thing is there might be less risk for investors because Square is more diversified. It is a payments platform, whereas Afterpay is just a buy now, pay later company. So Afterpay services will almost certainly be integrated onto Square platforms. So, uh, you know, there's potentially less risk for investors because you're now diversifying into a payments platform, not just to buy now, pay later. Now, the flip side is, of course, if you've invested in Afterpay just to be in the buy now, pay later segment, then this diversification sucks. It goes against your investing thesis of why you invested in Afterpay in the first place. So, you know, 
this may mean that you get turned off square and sell your holdings and, you know, crack the shits, then start investing in competitors like Zipco or whatever it is. But, you know, um, those are the three things that I see happening. But hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about what happens. But Afterpay is a huge Australian success story. You know, basically they invented the segment of payment markets, a buy now, pay later. But I think, you know, the market is now saturated and we know that Amazon, Google and Apple all want a piece of it. And before I got too competitive, I think Afterpay did a great job offloading their invention. It's very difficult to compete against, you know, Google and Amazon, which are, you know, $2 trillion companies. So uh, well done, Afterpay. Um, Do I use Afterpay? No. Uh, I think if you don't have money to buy things now, then don't buy it. It's a very, very simple concept. Question 14. Um, If I chose to invest in individual stocks, how many stocks is it ideal in terms of the number for diversification purposes? It's a really good question. I think if you're doing individual stocks, um, you really shouldn't have anything more than 5% of your portfolio in any one stock. That's probably the limit that I would choose if I was an active individual stock investor. And that sort of translates to about 20 stocks. Um, And hopefully, you know, you put those 20 stocks, you know, not only in one sector, you'll sort of diversify across many sectors. Um, Now, if you can stretch it to perhaps 30 stocks, uh, I would say that should be enough in terms of a diversification. But... I don't invest in individual stocks. I don't really think about this very much. I just invest in index funds. And if you, you know, buy the VAS or VDHD, I mean, you'll be investing in hundreds and hundreds of companies, uh, either local or global. So uh, that's, to me, is a far safer way of going about it, uh, particularly for the novice investor. But if you're one of those people that's really geeky and wants to get in on the action of active trading, then having about 20 to 30 stocks, I would say, would be pretty good diversification across many sectors, of course. Question 15. Um, Can you briefly explain the main difference between index funds and ETFs? I get this question a lot, so I'll just go through this very quickly for those people that are new. The term index funds is often used interchangeably uh, to ETFs, but they're slightly different, okay? So ETFs are basically products which track the index and they're packaged like stocks, okay? And basically what this means is that you need a broker so that you can buy and sell ETFs just like any other stock. So when you buy the ETF, it's like buying something from a shopping center and just buying it and then maybe selling it on eBay and then buying something else and selling it. So the important thing about ETFs is that, you know, you just buy it just like any other share. Except when you buy an ETF, it tracks an index. So it has you know, potential diversification within it. Whereas if you're buying an unlisted index fund or managed fund, they're like products that also track the index, but they're not packaged like stocks. And this means you don't need a broker, but the only disadvantages or advantages, depending on how you look at it, you can only buy or sell the index fund at the end of the trading day. So you can't buy and sell the index fund multiple times a day, similar to an ETF. So, and the other sort of sub-question I get asked about it is, what about tax efficiency? You know, aren't ETFs more tax efficient compared to index funds or managed funds, right? And theoretically, that's true. Index funds, managed funds, or unlisted funds, 
are less tax efficient. And the reason for that is when the investor wants to redeem their investments, the index fund has to sell units to give the money back to the investor. And the capital gains is distributed across everyone that holds the fund, not just that person. So, but the thing is though, you know, index funds have low turnover. It kind of doesn't matter too much to the average investor over the very long term, especially if they plan never to sell their investments and hopefully live off the dividends it produces perpetually. Because remember, the whole point of this is to accumulate wealth forever, all right? So, you know, you're not really buying managed funds today and selling them next week. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to keep buying. It's designed to keep buying for the rest of your life. So hopefully that sort of, you know, highlights the main differences between ETFs and index funds. It's a very, very crash course, but I have done a specific episode on it. If you're interested, again, download any of these podcasting uh, apps and just uh, search for it. Just type in index fund versus ETF. Question 16. Hi, Dev. I'm an electrician and you are the talk within our company. We got some employees onto your podcast and the young blokes seem to enjoy it. Thanks for what you do. Now, one of the things that I've noticed, particularly over the last sort of three to six months, is that non-medical people, non-healthcare workers are starting to listen, which is fantastic. Um, So I really appreciate, um, you know, this particular electrician to promote the podcast amongst his employees and his business and his company. So thank you very much for listening. Look, although most listeners even now are doctors, nurses and allied health professionals and pharmacists, etc., you know... I do have a fair bit of non-healthcare workers and people who are into their fire journey listening to my podcast, so that's great. But the important thing is the principles of money and finance don't change irrespective of what profession you are, what income you have, and that's the beauty of it. And I've kept the podcast very simple in terms of financial principles because how much you earn or how much you spend doesn't really matter depending on your profession. I mean, the principles are exactly the same. Um, so, you know, that, that's why I don't consider myself a Finfluencer, which ironically the ASIC, um, ASIC, sorry, are looking into closely because I don't recommend any specific products. I just recommend learning about money and investing in finance and personal finance principles. Uh, maybe I should be creating a TikTok account, uh, uh, you know, recently been thinking about it to try and inspire more people, particularly the younger generation. You know, I'm technically a millennial. Uh, you know, all these Gen Zs that are, you know, using TikTok or whatever it is that they use. So if you think I should be on TikTok, let me know via an Apple podcast review or a five-star review or tweet at me or whatever. If, if you think that I should have a TikTok account and I'll definitely consider it. Uh, and I think my family will probably be horrified if I tell them uh, if I'm opening a TikTok account. But uh, anyway, I'll leave it up to you. If you think Dev Raga should be on TikTok, hit me up. Let's see what the crowd thinks. Question 17, what's the best way to teach my children about the importance of money? The power of observation. That is really, really important. Children learn from their parents by action rather by teachings, especially in their young age. So your financial habits or any habits that you have is closely being watched by your kids. So ensure you explain why you do the things you do to them so that they understand the correct reasons why you do it. 
don't bombard them with financial knowledge and make it age appropriate. So you'd be surprised how much your children are learning from you without you having to tell them everything because they learn from your actions. They learn from your behavior. They learn from your habits. So if your child sees you buying things that you don't need with money that you kind of don't have using afterpay or credit cards or whatever it is, the chances are they're going to think that's normal behavior because what you do is what they think is normal. So you got to make sure the way that you behave, the way that you act, the way that you speak and the way that you do things inspire them to try and emulate some good financial behaviors. And that can be in non-finance world as well, whether you smoke or whether you drink excessively or unfortunately whether you've got some certain addictions. So, you know, obviously seek help professionally for that, but just be aware that your children are watching and learning from you all the time. So the power of observation, I think it's really, really important and it's a really useful way to discuss and teach your children about money and you'll be amazed how much they already know. Question 18, what is an in-specie transfer, I think I pronounced it right, of assets into my SMSF? Now, this question came through Facebook, so thanks very much. It's a great question, and it's something that I don't really know much about, actually, so I had to look it up. Um, Basically, when you contribute to your super, the most common contribution we make is cash. We transfer funds... Uh, you know, in and out of our super. Now, in-specie transfer just means actual form transfer. So, for example, actual forms of shares or property in the original form. Another name for such transfers is called off-market transfers. And these sort of transfers are more common for self-managed super funds. So let's do a mini deep dive in this topic. So what type of transfers are possible? Usually it's shares or commercial property. And the main main rule here is the fund transfer must be in the name of you. So you can't transfer property or shares from people other than yourself. And how do you do that? How do you transfer shares or property into SMSF? Basically fill out a form from the ASX listed securities and list the SMSF as the purchaser of the shares and you fill out a contract of sale for the property, again, listing the SMSF as the purchaser of the property and you make sure you do this um, with professional help. You enlist a credential lawyer to drop these contracts, otherwise it's an absolute disaster. And how do you then transfer it out of the SMSF? Well, basically, this is when the SMSF is being wound up or the assets are being sold or a lump sum is transferred out of the SMSF. Now, if the assets are not sold off, then the in-specie transfer happens as a whole. So in other words, you can't make pension payments from in-specie transfers. So it's got to be as a whole. Why do it? Um, generally speaking, the main reason is taxation. So it's a little bit tax advantage, but you need to get specialized advice about this. So, for example, suppose you're on a very high tax bracket. Your option is either to sell it, the shares or the property, etc., and pay the capital gains tax and 
take the 50% discount if you own it for greater than 12 months, for example. And this means you might have to pay a fair bit of tax based on the capital gain. So the other option, though, is you can transfer the asset in specie into your SMSF in its original form. Now, again, you know, you need to get sound financial advice about this because my understanding is even if you did that, you may still be liable for capital gains tax because you are changing the form of the asset. Now, the advantage still holds, though, because on the back end of it all, during retirement, up to $1.7 million in assets, which you earn, is tax-free. So if you've got assets of $1.7 million, whatever earnings they make, is tax-free. And that's in today's dollars. So if the SMSF sells it, thereafter reaching your preservation age, uh, you know, potentially it's tax-free for you. So, you know, of course, there are limits supply and there's special rules about it. Go to the ATO's website to find out more. But, um, you know, it, there are some tax benefits for doing this. So does that mean that you don't have to pay tax with interspecies transfers and SMSF? And the answer is wrong. You do have to pay tax. You're still liable to report the transfer as a concessional contribution or a non-concessional contribution because it is a contribution. And the transfer happens usually at their market value. And of course, concessional contributions are then taxed at 15% as usual. Uh, and if you breach the concessional limits, then you'd be higher taxed, of course. And non-concessional contributions are not taxed, of course, because just like anything else, there's a limit of 110000 per year. What about stamp duty? Uh, yep, any commercial property transfer, you still have to pay government stamp duty. So you've got to do your sums carefully prior to doing your transfers to make sure that it's actually beneficial. Uh, there are no government stamp duties, of course, for shares or securities um, because they don't attract stamp duty. Hope that clarifies. A bitty mini dive into in-specie transfers. Question 19. We're coming to the back end of questions here. I'm 45 years old, own my own home outright and haven't got much in super. Is it too late to start investing? Absolutely not. There is no such thing as starting too late. The best time to invest is yesterday, and the next best time is today. Now, could you have invested 20 years ago? Of course. Did you? No. So there's no point drowning out in sorrow about it. Um, and it doesn't make it wrong to start investing now. And I speak to many doctors who are in their 40s who don't have any investments. Why? Because they just spent their entire time focusing on their career their patience, which is good, but didn't focus on themselves. So pay yourself first, which is a timeless principle, which always comes in handy. So for you, I did some sums. If you started at age 45 and invested $2,500 per month for 20 years until the age of 65, and let's say it grew at about 8% per annum with an expense ratio of about 0.1% on average, you'll have about $1.1 million. Now that's still one point, sorry, one point, not 1.1, beg your pardon, $1.41 million. And that's still $1.41 million more than what you would have had had you not invested. Now the average retirement lasts for about 20 years. Life expectancy between 80 and 85 in Australia, depending on male or female. So if you're retired at age 85, assume you're going to live 20 years. So let's keep going. Supposing you didn't put a single dime into that $1.41 million portfolio retirement. And the question is, how much money will you have at age 85 if 
you know, you basically drew $90,000 per year and you had a 2 to 3% inflation rate and when would you actually run out of money? And you wouldn't run out of money, wait for it, for 45 years, even with just $1.41 million. Now, if you just did that for 3% inflation rather than 2% inflation, you'll still have money for 31 years. The average retirement is only 20 years. So you've got to start investing. You don't need that much money to retire on. And we were drawing about $90,000 per annum, $90,000 per annum. Now, if you think $90,000 is too much, or if you think that you know, 8% per annum returns is too much, let's reduce it to 7% per annum. Let's assume inflation is 2%, and you withdraw just 75000 How long will your money last for if you retire at age 65 with $1.41 million in your portfolio? You'll have money lasting until you turn 119 years old. So the moral here is, for retirement, it depends on how long you live, how much you withdraw, what your return is, and what inflation is. But the most important thing is, having $1.41 million is better than not having it. So invest now, invest today, don't wait for tomorrow, and do it forever. Start early. Question 20. Should income be a factor in choosing your career. I think this was from someone who was a doctor was thinking about perhaps choosing a specialty based on the income that they might generate. Look, I think I think yes and no. I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, medicine doesn't pay well in general. It does. It's a lot of hard work, but it does pay well. You know, as a doctor, you earn a pretty good wage. You work your ass off for it. And, you know, train for about, you know, 10 to 20 years for it, but you make good wage. Um, and it depends on what sort of career you want to choose, right? I mean, I, I, I think you need to do something you like and enjoy. There's nothing more horrible than doing something that you hate. Uh, so I'll, I'll sort of use a medical example. You know, various specialties pay various incomes in medicine. A surgeon may earn 500 to a million dollars per year. A physician may earn three hundred to six hundred thousand dollars per year if they're not an interventionalist. A pediatrician may earn two fifty to five hundred thousand per year, and a GP may earn two fifty to five hundred thousand per year. That doesn't automatically mean you should be gunning to become a surgeon because they earn a little bit more. A bad surgeon who has a lot of complications does not make much money. So, once you choose your base career, then stick what to what you like and what interests you. That's really important. And try and be the best you can. And I think money will just flow. And in medicine and generally, I use the three A's principle. Make sure you're available. Make sure you're affable. And make sure you're able. The triple A principle. Question 21. Markets are at all-time highs. Property prices going through the roof. Is this irrational exuberance? The term be fearful when everyone is greedy comes to mind. What are your thoughts on the current market conditions? Look, I think for the long-term investor, it doesn't really matter. Remember the Dow Jones hit an all-time high just 10 years ago? Now, it seems so long ago 
since that time when it reached all-time high. This is across the board. Even the ASX hit new highs last month. So I'm not particularly worried about markets going higher or dropping. I haven't changed my strategy based on markets being very high. It's also the same for property. I think with net population increase, net migration increase over the long term, a lack of land in Australia, usable land, which is you know, highly sought after in, you know, particularly in cities like Melbourne and Sydney and major metropolitan cities. We're a highly urbanised nation. I think Australian property will continue to go up over the next 20, 30, 40 years. There are some dips coming in the future, but the underlying trend will be that it goes higher and higher. So the answer to the question is, no, not worried at all. Question 22, can you briefly explain the personal insurances Uh, sorry, personal insurance changes, which may hit us in October 2021. Look, the insurance industry posted a huge loss for 2020 financial year, about 1.4 billion after-tax losses, and it's not sustainable. So uh, APRA decided to change uh, an act and make them change their generous policies. In fact, Australia had some of the best insurance policies in the world, and the payout rates were very, very high. Major banks started abandoning their insurance arm of their overall business. And as of March 2020, there's no agreed value policies anymore. And this is because in some instances, insurance payouts turned out to be more than what the person would have actually gotten as an employee. So the next change coming is next month, which is in October. It's what's called guaranteed renewable policies. Uh, You may want to check with your broker about this. Basically, this means every five years, your policy will need to be renewed. And they may ask a few questions about it. I don't think they do health checks every five years. I don't think they're allowed to do that. And the definition of income is also changing. Is basically it's what you earned at the time of the claim and what have you earned 12 months prior. Now, some providers may consider up to three-year time frame. So this means if your income is affected by COVID, unfortunately, you're disadvantaged. So if you're not insured with personal insurance income protection especially, try and get it before October 2021. Speak to a broker uh, and learn about some of the changes. Do not wait or procrastinate. I think that's how you pronounce it. Question 23, and that'll be the last question for this episode. Can you briefly explain the main differences between carry forward contributions and bring forward contributions? Quite simply, carry forward contributions essentially is concessional contributions. Uh, which are usually capped at $27,500, and this includes employer contributions. You've got to have two rules, which has to be fulfilled. You've got to have less than half a million dollars in your super, and you've got to contribute more than the cap. And you can only use unused concessional contributions, which is carry forward from the last five financial years. And I think the first time this starts was in 2018, 2019 financial year. So we're in the first five-year cycle at the moment. Now, this is actually excellent for those of you that have started off in low incomes, particularly doctors, junior doctors, you know, that basically start off as an intern on a base wage and basically work their way up the ranks until they become a consultant. So make use of that. And um, basically, you know, if you have a low wage now and have a raise in about five years' time, you want to maximise your super contributions and then carry them forward. Uh, And just remember that concessional contributions are only taxed at 15%. So if you're on a 40% tax rate, you get an instant 25% return on your money. It's guaranteed. It's a no-brainer. If you don't need the money until retirement, it's a no-brainer 
to maximize your concessional contributions. It's free money and it's totally legal. And the bring forward contributions, basically, again, two rules. Uh, If you're under 64 before June 2020 or under 66 after July 2020, uh, your super balance has to be less than $1.7 million. Uh, But of course, there's a few other complexities. You need to go to the ATO to find out more about that. And basically, what that means is you can bring forward three years worth of $110,000 per year, so about you know $300,000 or $330,000. When you're close to retirement, if you think you're not going to be able to reach that $1.7 million, you can bring forward up to three years, I think it is, and you can just top it up to ensure that you get closer to that transfer balance cap um, and... You know, you might have paid off your mortgage, you've got leftover money and want to invest in your super due to the tax efficiencies. Remember, any earnings from super uh, up to a transfer balance cap is tax free. So hopefully that um, explains to you. And uh, those are the 23 questions that I thought would be interesting for a lot of listeners. So that's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I got a really nice feedback from Crystal from Apple Podcast. I'll just read that to you. Thanks for a great introduction to personal finance. Thanks, Dev, for a fantastic introduction to learning about personal finance. Recently, it's become clear that I am great at living well within my means, but truly saving and wealth creation has not been a priority. Your podcast have filled a gap in my education, explaining basic concepts clearly and succinctly, and then building on this so that I can feel empowered to consider my personal financial position and make steps to build wealth for the future. Thanks so much. Much appreciated. Thank you, Crystal, and congratulations, and thanks for listening. The more ratings you leave, the better it is for me. Uh, Recently, I think I cracked the top 20 uh, of the investing sector uh, for podcasts in Australia, so it's not too bad. Um, So the more people get access to this podcast just by more ratings, more reviews, so please keep them coming. Remember to like the Devraga Facebook page. Shout out to questions, comments, or topics, suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends, Um, Apple, Google, CastBox, Spotify, whatever. Just share it. Post it on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram or Twitter, whatever that you use. Uh, Remember, always pay yourself 20%. Take 20% of after-tax income at least and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. If you have any questions, send them my way. We'll aim to answer them as soon as possible. This is Dev Rucker, Personal Finance. Sorry for the slightly longish episode. But this is episode 129. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.